This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. We know the air is unfit to breathe and our food is unfit to eat. We sit watching our TVs while some local newscaster tells us that today we had 15 homicides and 63 violent crimes, as if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad. I want you to get mad. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore! Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the broadcast. George Genescu, the good doctor, who hosts the show preceding mine, Big Band Sunday Night, here at... Uh, the Blowtorch Station, AM740, Toronto, Canada, uh, always says the same thing to me as he's leaving the studio, making his way down the corridor to his car, and that is, don't do anything until I get to my car. He's a, a, a wonderful booster for the show, wonderful supporter, listens as he drives all the way up the 400 uh, to his home in Barrie. And uh, so what I'm doing is I'm stalling so George can get into his car because he doesn't like to miss anything. Uh, listen, uh, let me take this opportunity to uh, remind you that you can follow me on uh, Twitter, uh, twitter.com slash Richard Serrett, all one word. Let me spell my last name. 20 years in the business and I'm still spelling my last name. It's S as in Simon, T. And when you get there, you'll find, now this is biblical, folks. Uh, you know, the, the Revelations talks about uh, uh, the second coming and the end times and and. Uh, uh, war, you know, the signs, right? The signs that the end times are coming. They are nigh. Uh, wars and rumors of war and extreme weather and so forth. I'm, I'll have to double check the good book. I don't know if it said anything about giant eyeballs washing ashore, but this is what has happened in uh, Pompano Beach uh, in Florida. A man walking along the beach there, Pompano Beach, he found a giant eyeball. And now the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission are investigating. It was found on Wednesday. And uh, I swear to God, you'll see a picture of it. A man or a woman wearing surgical gloves. And, of course, you, if you're holding a giant eyeball, who wouldn't wear surgical gloves? But this thing is, it's, uh, it looks very fresh, if I can use that term. And I mean, the eye is not clouded over. There's no sign of a cataract or anything. And this is the size of a softball or a very large grapefruit. So one has to ask, uh, you know, what skull did that fall out of? What enormous sea creature is uh, uh, one eye short? An assistant biology professor at Florida International Uni University in Miami said the blue eyeball may have come from a deep-sea squid or a large swordfish. That's one large swordfish, i got to tell you. Anyway, check it out. 
uh, giant eyeball found on beach, and uh, that and many more stories um, I've uh, tweeted. And you can get to my. You can also uh, follow my Twitter by uh, logging onto the website richardserrett.com. Now, uh, never been accused of being uh, the king of segways, but uh, show of hands, how many here have seen the uh, the new movie Looper? Tim in the other room has seen it. And your thoughts, Tim? A thumbs up, thumbs down. Well, you, you, sort of tentative. Ah, so so. All right. And those uh, who haven't, I have not seen it. I'll uh, I'll wait till it comes out uh, on DVD. Uh, it stars jo- um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt as Joe, this assassin. He kills his targets um, that are sent back to him in time by the mob, which is a rather nefarious use of a time machine. Um, but it's interesting because, you know, time travel has always been the staple of science fiction, and this latest rendition is showing up in this film, Looper. And uh, now scientists are saying that it's quite possible it's quite possible. It's consistent with the law of physics to change the rate at which clocks run. And uh, most scientists or physicists think it's possible to go forward. Actually, it's been proven. You can go forward. They've done, you know, they did a study with these two atomic clocks and one was on the ground and one was in a very fast moving uh, jet. And the one that was moving around at a, a higher speed in the jet, actually, um, I believe that clock was slower than the one on the ground, right? By, just by nanoseconds, thus proving, you know, you can travel in, into the future. Traveling into the past, of course, is an entirely uh, other kettle of fish. And, and physicists are saying, in order to travel into the past, uh, you would basically, you would need, um, you'd need the energy, enough energy that would uh, require about half the mass of the universe. And then, oh, and just one other little thing. It would probably destroy the universe in the process. But that's a minor point. <laughs> the, you know, so there's still hope out there that we could travel uh, into uh, the past. Now, on this program, uh, in the past, I've uh, interviewed a, a very interesting uh, gentleman out of the University of Connecticut, a physics, uh, physics professor by the name of um, uh, Ronald Mallet, who has been working on a theoretical time machine for many years and there's some stumbling blocks. He needs funding, and uh, there may or may not be some problems with his theory. Uh, but lo and behold, there is someone else out there who is uh, contending for the crown uh, of the, the first time machine. And we're going to speak to him right now. Marshall Barnes is a research and design engineer and a member of the Philosophy of Time Society. He's a conceptual theorist with a specialty in theoretical physics and cognition related to creativity and technologically induced modes of perception. That's quite a mouthful. We'll find out what that means. He's a member of the Philosophy of Time Society, as I say, National STEM Foundation, and the Nine Sigma Open Invitation Organization. On June 14th of this year, he was named EdUtopia, edutopia.org featured member of the week and was accepted as a member of the 1,000 Scientists in 1,000 Days program, Scientific American Magazine. That same month, he's currently promoting science, technology, engineering, arts, and math agenda. But he's here to tell us about his race to build the very first working time machine. Marshall Barnes, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm well, thank you. All right. So, let's first of all... Uh, let's talk, settle this for me, because I've always been confused. I've, I've heard uh, physicists who say that Einstein's theory of relativity does not allow uh, for time travel. 
Um, and I've heard those who say, well, yes, it does. Now, your theory, your theoretical time machine is actually based on on Einstein's theory of rel- relativity, is it not? No. It's uh, not. It's based on his unfinished unified field theory. Ah, on his, unifi- on unifi- or his unified field theory. Okay. Right. It's his, it's his unfinished one. He never actually uh, solved it. Uh, and so we have to consider it, you know, unfinished. But it's his unified field theory of electromagnetism and gravity, or what you might call distant parallelism or teleparallelism. Um, but it's not general relativity. Most physicists, uh, when it comes to time travel, actually have a very pedestrian and shallow knowledge of the subject, which is why people like Ed Farhi of MIT, which is where that one quote came from about, well, it would take, you know, half the energy of the universe and it would probably destroy it, you know, that kind of thing. They're, they're running equations out of general relativity, and general relativity allows for some very unique and interesting things, except that they're very difficult to accomplish. And, by the way, for your audience who may not be aware of this, uh, general relativity was first put together back in 1915. So you're talking about physicists who are still talking about a theory that's almost 100 years old, okay? Right, right. So, I mean, it's kind of like, hello? Can you come up with something else in the meantime? You know, one would uh, think. Uh, Marshall, let, let me um, ask you also bec- to to uh, to go gentle with us, uh, fair listeners, because uh, you know we're, m- most of us are. Well, uh, if they're anything like me, they basically uh, barely got through. I think grade ten physics. Um, so let's let's try and keep it. And, and this is actually something that you're very well, good yeah, at. I've seen I'll, you on I'll YouTube, and you're a master you at have. this. If you you are. A, I'm just asking me a question. Yeah, you're a. But you're a. I've seen you on, you on YouTube. You're a master at making complex, um, uh, complex ideas, very uh, simple and crystal clear, which is one of the reasons we have you on the program. Yeah. So your theoretical time machine. How does it work? How would it work? Okay. Uh, first of all, uh, unlike Dr. Millette, who I happen to know uh, personally, um, it is not like just a design and I'm saying, like, well, theoretically, if we get this belt, maybe it'll be a time machine. It is an actual machine that is approaching the first stage requirement to be a time machine. Okay? Uh, what has happened is it utilizes a specially synthesized electromagnetic signal or actually an electronic signal, that then when it hits metal, becomes an electromagnetic field. And that field has certain special properties. The main one is that it grabs space as it moves through space and contracts it. And thus, it causes acceleration. Uh, essentially, it is like the first functioning prototype for warp drive. Now, we've done a number of uh, experiments with this thing in a linear fashion, whether we put them on vehicles going down the road or we did gravity drops. And, uh, and it always caused acceleration. But the idea came up with, uh, was basically, well, what happens if we have it going around and around? In other words, rotating. So it's moving, but it's moving like in a fixed position. That's when you have some very interesting ideas come up. And essentially, like, for example, Samir Mathura from Ohio State University, who's a physicist in the area of general relativity, said, well, if you do that and it acts the way you think it might act, you might have to start thinking about, you know, Kochi horizons developing and things of this nature. What does that which mean? Which are normally attributed to, like, black holes. You know, you have a region where, you know, on the other side of it, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's an area where you can't say, well, this is where all this came from which on the other side. Uh, it, it kind of breaks causality down. Um, so I don't know what that means, though, Mark. I, I mean, are you suggesting... Uh, in other words, uh, cause and effect. Okay. Stops happening the way you would think, you would believe. Okay. Are you saying that you could create a black hole with this thing? No, 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 no. That's what Samir Mathur was saying that we should. 
start thinking about if an extreme model, uh, an extreme version of this idea, before we even try to do it, okay. uh, was going to take place. And, and, and at that stage, it was purely theoretical. It was just like, what, what should we expect? And so um, I went out to Pasadena for the Mars Society conference back in uh, just this past August. And I was out there with some, with some pretty brainy people. And we were all sitting around at the banquet table one night, and I told them about this idea I had about applying this signal to a metal fan so that that signal would then become an electromagnetic field, spinning with that fan and then make that fan contract space, and it would start to get these possible interesting effects. So the signal would oscillate uh, in, with, in the same motion as the fan. Right. In other words, the signal would become an electromagnetic field enveloping the fan blades. Right. And because the fan blades are spinning around and around, they would be contracting space as they move through space. So what would happen then is that space would not have uh, the opportunity to expand back because here comes another blade. Right. And then before that get, uh, gets to, um, to be, you know, finished reacting to that, here goes another blade, another blade. So then you would have this idea of like, well, it starts contracting toward the center. Okay, and Marshall, then, let me just jump in here. Sorry uh, to interrupt. Sure. We've got the music percolating up here. Let's just... Okay. You've just dropped a, a, a bomb on us. People are saying, wait, wait a minute. What is this guy saying? Let's find out. Let's come back, gather ourselves, and continue to discuss the race to build the first time machine with Marshall Barnes, who may be close. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. AM 740. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Welcome back, friends. Marshall Barnes is with us. He's in a race to build the first time machine. And uh, he's um, explaining how this will work. Now, uh, tell me, describe to me what this thing looks like. Oh, right now, it's, it's a simple uh, metal fan. It's not very big, but it has a cable attached to it. It's not attached to the motor. It's attached to actually uh, uh, part of the housing that uh, then basically what happens is when we send the signal to this particular uh, portion of the fan, it's then conducted to the axle, and then it goes to the fan blades. And we've tested it to make sure, you know, in fact, we, I did a conductivity test before I even tried to do anything else with it. And uh, essentially what that was is you hook it up to a uh, stereo, and then you uh, take a speaker with a speaker wire coming off the back of it, mm-hmm. and then you touch it to the, uh, to the different parts of the fan while the stereo is running. And if you hear music, and you hear music with high fidelity, then you've got a really good, you know, conductive connection there. And that's how we tested it out before uh, I started doing, you know, any real experiments with it. So that it's was basically what the setup allows you to do. The, um, what, the, what effects we're getting already are, number one, and this is the most important one, we're getting an acceleration of the fan. Uh, what happens is if you turn the fan on and you use a strobe light to try to, uh, to make it look like it's slowed down, uh, by setting this uh, rate on the strobe light. Right, you're putting a, you're putting a load on the um, on the current. So once you add a load, then the, the because of the laws of conservation of energy, the the blades should, according to the present laws of physics, should slow down. Right? No, 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 no. 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 Okay. The slowdown part has to do with like um, the same principles of a timing light when a mechanic works on a car. Okay. You've got the strobe light flashing. You're trying to think. You're trying to. And I'm not a mechanic, but. 
I know that there's something with, with like, the timing belt or whatever. They're trying to get something to sync up so they know that everything's running right. Okay. All right, so what we're doing with the, with the strobe light is we're flashing the strobe light at the fan. Oh, I and see. Then we okay. Adjust the rate so it looks like the fan's not moving. The fan's still moving. If you put your finger in, it's not going to be good. But if the fan's still moving, but it just looks like it's not moving because of the, because of the flicker rate of the strobe light. Right, right. Okay? So it has nothing to do with the load. Okay, or like I understand. That. I know that. what you're talking about. Yeah. It has nothing to do with it. Okay. Because we're not, we're not doing anything to the motor of this fan. Got it. Okay. So what happens then is when you get it look like it's not moving and then you turn on the field, and all of a sudden it breaks out of that frozen position, that means guess what? The blades it's are faster. faster. Right. Okay. Exactly. So, uh, so that was the one thing we did. The other thing we did was uh, we, we, we were shining a light at it and, uh, in a dark room, and we noticed when a field's activated that it seems like some of the light starts to disappear, and we don't know why, okay? Now, uh, before I can you know, make a guesstimate about that, I have to do a test to see whether or not if it has anything to do with the fact that the fan blades are moving faster, so it might, reflect, it might affect the reflectivity uh, that's being, you know, that's going on with the light hitting the fan blades. But we can definitely see that there is a decrease in the light that's reflecting off of the blades. So, so Marshall, if you were to place something inside this field that's been created by the oscillating fan blades in conjunction with this, this, uh, this signal, what do you suspect would happen to that object? Well, okay, right now, not a whole lot, uh, aside from the fact that we've got a high-velocity fan going and it's blowing all kinds of air, okay? So, but the, uh, the thing about it is that uh, eventually what we want to do is raise the power, because we're, we're working with maybe 50 watts at the most, okay? Now, we can get our hands on an amplifier. It's an expensive one, but we could, you know, it's available. We can get our hands on an amplifier that's 14,000 watts per channel. Now, along with the fact that we have... Oh, yeah, the other thing that's interesting is that uh, when you look at this fan when the field's turned on, you don't really see anything that radical with your naked eye. But if you turn up the monitor, a uh, video monitor, after you've shot footage of it, you get a, co- uh, you get a ring of color. It's like green. And that's just normal. That just, it just comes off, that, comes off that way. But then when the field's activated, all of a sudden you see this stream of yellow coming into it. And we're like, what is that? <laughs> you know, we're still trying to figure out what that is. But that's something else that's indicating that there's something really different going on here. But again, we're only dealing with 50 watts output. So if you can imagine increasing the power by like 300 times, I mean, you can just, you can just kind of think, well, you know, we might be at that point, maybe even before that point, be approaching what you might call science fiction level effects. Okay, but explain to me why you believe that you are actually creating a time machine and not just blowing air around at incredibly high rates. Well, because what we're seeing, ha- the effects that we're seeing have nothing to do with the air. Okay. That's why. Um, I mean, air, I mean, for example, the acceleration of the fan has nothing to do with blowing air. It's blowing air uh, anyway. Right. So, uh, and also, the thing about it is if we, just like Ron Mallet with his uh, rotating ring laser, he thinks that if by having this laser go around, it's going to start to twist space and time. And then he'll start to get closed kind of like curves, and they'll have a time machine. Right. Well, we know that space is being affected by this field. That's what's causing the acceleration of the fan. Okay. So if we crank it up with enough power, then we will start to twist space and time. And then we will eventually get closed time like curves. I mean, it's just a matter of, you know, doing the math on it. The key is that this field does something that is akin to what Einstein was talking about with his... Uh, unified field theory of electromagnetism and gravity. 
that we have an electromagnetic field that is creating a gravitic effect. In other words, it's exhibiting the kind of properties you expect if electromagnetism and gravity were coupled together in some fashion. And there's other physicists who've been looking at this idea, but the big difference is that they're trying to make the electromagnetic field take on these properties after the field has been created, whereas my approach was synthesizing something from the, from the very beginning so that when the field you know, is, is created, it's already doing what you want it to do. When you say you've synthesized this field, what, is, what are the properties of this, this uh, electrical signal that you're sending to the fan? Okay, what's going on is that it's a special, like I said, specially synthesized signal, and, and it's, it's created in a way that, you know, because my background's in music, okay, and video and things like that. And so, you know, I remember when synthesizers were all these buttons and patch cords and things like that, so I understand synthesis. Most physicists don't, okay? So... The, the situation is such that, and this is not a proprietary area for obvious reasons, but uh, the basic idea was that I was interested in what interesting things uh, special electromagnetic fields could do. One of my first experiments was uh, I created a rotating electromagnetic field that was basically had a TV set, not so much in the middle of it, but kind of in, in the middle of the loop, not in the center, but like part of the, part of the loop that was going on. And basically what it succeeded in doing was completely breaking down all the filtering mechanisms so that I was able to basically capture cell phone calls and all kinds of communications that shouldn't have been coming through the TV set. And at the same time this is happening, on the screen you see nothing but white. And it's, it's white that's slowly undulating, like somebody, like you're looking down the surface of a glass of milk and somebody just kind of gently t- knocks it a little bit, just make it ripple. Right. And that's what was on the screen. Hmm. And then at one point, uh, at another time I was doing one of these experiments, um, one of the things I was interested in was uh, signals traveling through space. As you well know, being in radio, uh, all these radio signals and TV signals for the years are just flying out in outer space. So I was, I was interested in finding out whether or not it might be possible to capture one of these things from the past. And one day, lo and behold, I got this old movie on the TV while I was running one of these experiments. I got all excited and everything at first, but then it went to commercial, and it was like, you know, it was a modern-day commercial. Ah, okay, so what it I'd wasn't... What I had done was I had picked up a, a TV station from a long distance away that I really had, shouldn't have been able to pick up at all. So that was, uh, it wasn't what I was really looking for, but it was very interesting nonetheless. Now, this, this machine that you're working on, this uh, time machine that you're working on... Right. Um, what, what's the, 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 the game plan here? Do you, do, you, do you think that within your lifetime you could send information forwards in time or an actual person forwards in time? Okay, we're not going forward. This is, this is because we're, we're going to be creating closed time-like curves. We, we, this is about the past. It's not about sending anything to the future at all. You're, you're, you, you sincerely believe it is possible to travel backwards in time? Okay. Uh, several things. One, yes. Uh, two, there's more than one way of trying to do it, but I'm just saying just basically within the context of what we're doing, uh, based on what Mallet was talking about, although using a completely different approach, mm-hmm. we're talking about being able to create closed time-like curves, which would then send something backward to the past. Okay. So that's, that's the model. We're not trying to send anything to the future. It might be, it might be theoretically possible to do that, but that's like, you know, further down the road, and we have to take a slightly different approach. Would you be sending information to the past or people? Okay. Um, 
the first thing we're going to be doing is we're going to be seeing like photons disappear and then electrons. Uh, and then, so you can, so you can call that information if you want. Um, then it'd be a situation where we'll just start slowly scaling everything up. So before we try to send somebody, first of all, we have to know what's on the other, what's going on on the other end. Okay. But eventually, let's say in the long view, uh, yeah, there's, in fact, I've already had people say that they would, they would volunteer to go, <laughs> but the, uh, but yeah, it's, it's a process whereby we would slowly scale up, see what happens, see how, how well the whole operation works. And then you start sending live things back, like maybe a roach or something like that, or, you know, a hamster, and then it gets up to a lizard or, you know, you know, the, the normal scientific way you do these kind of things, like when they were putting animals up in outer space before they put, you know, right. a man. Right. It's the same kind of approach. Let me ask you a question that may on the surface seem silly, but I sometimes I ask those types of questions. That's fine. Uh, how do we know the past exists? Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, no, it's, it, yeah, it, it certainly does make sense. Um, one way of looking at it is the block universe model, okay? And in the block universe model, Everything that's ever happened and is going to happen is already all laid out, okay? So the short, the short version of this whole thing is essentially looking at it as, as everything's the past. If, if, if the block universe model has any kind of validity whatsoever, that means everything's already happened. It's just that we're in the middle of it. It's like, for example, um, if you have a DVD and it's got you know, alternate versions on it and all this kind of stuff, on that DVD, everything's already happened. But when you put it in your player and you watch it, it's not already happened to you yet because you're in the middle watching a DVD. Right. But it's already all there. Okay. So that's one way of looking at the whole thing about the past. And the other thing about it is that, you know, physicists have seen equations that would suggest that you could go backwards in time, and that's where, where, where it comes from. So, you know, but and I want to point out one thing. One of the problems with dealing with concepts about time travel is that the original ideas about time travel came from, like, you know, science fiction stories. H.G. Wells. Exactly, right. And so, inherently, you have all kinds of ideas in there that don't make sense if you try to apply it to the real world. Like paradoxes, okay? There are no paradoxes in any real-time travel scenarios because it's real easy to see why that wouldn't happen. Uh, the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics is one of them. Okay, let me just explain, uh, like, a paradox. A typical paradox is the problem with t traveling to the, the past is, let's say I travel back to 19... Uh, 1951, and I prevent my parents uh, inadvertently from from getting married, and thus having children, and thus I wouldn't exist. Mm -hmm. So that's a paradox. Or I accidentally run over my great great grandfather with an ox cart in you know 1805, so that my grandparents would my grandfather wouldn't be born, my father wouldn't be born, and so on. These are these are called paradoxes. Right. You're saying that's not a problem with traveling backwards in time. Right. Exactly. How, and explain why? why. Because when you go back in time, now well, first let me start out from a scientific foundation. The Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics says that you only get one outcome per measurement. Okay. So to apply that to the real world, you know, the one measurement that's already happened is like all this stuff with your, you know, ancestors, and you are here, okay? So that's, that's a given. If you go back in time, and this is where it becomes very important, the mere act of traveling back to the past is a different outcome because it didn't happen the first time around. So that automatically says, okay, something's different here, all right? Then anything else that you do while you're back there, it's also obviously a different outcome. So you have to be in a parallel universe. You, you get, it's not the same timeline. So technically, right, so, are you traveling backwards in time, or are you simply jumping to another dimension? In other words, okay, 
anybody that talks about paradoxes within the context of time travel doesn't know anything seriously about time travel. That's just the way it is. Okay. All right? So it's a difference in describing time travel accurately or time travel the way you would if you were like a science fiction writer. Got all it. Right? So if you go back in time, you're ending up in a parallel universe, all right? You're not going to be on the same timeline as you were because everything they already happened, and we have records of it. For example, you can't go back in time and save the same Titanic that we know about because it's at the bottom of the ocean floor, okay? We've but you could save up. a Titanic in an alternate universe. Exactly. Uh, all right, hold on, Marshall. I've got uh, about a billion more questions for you. Okay. I don't know if we'll get to all of them. Probably not. But the one we need to find out is, is it possible to travel back further in time than when the time machine was created? Don't answer now. We'll get to that when we come back. Marshall Barnes, the race to build the first time machine, here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Big Brother is listening, and so are you, to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Welcome back. Marshall Barnes is uh, with us, and we are talking about uh, time travel, and he's building a time machine. And get this, he's not talking about uh, traveling into the future. I mean, we've already demonstrated that that that's possible, um, you know, nanoseconds into the future. He's talking about time travel into the past, a long thought by many physicists to be impossible. But but Marshall is saying, no, 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 They're, they're basing that on you know, a th- Einstein's theory that's a hundred years old. Uh, now, Marshall, here's, to me, the, one of the crucial questions. Uh-huh. Is it possible to, to travel back further in time than when the time device is turned on? Okay, now that's, a, that's a very good question, and I want to deal with that, because, first of all, what you have to understand is that when physicists say, basically what you just said, if you can't travel back in the past before the time machine's turned on, they are talking about closed time-like curves, all right? And what that is, closed time-like curves is like physicist code language for time machine. Because basically, this is, where, this is what happens in the scientific community. It's a lot like high school, okay? Uh, everybody wants to be popular. Everybody wants to be accepted. And there's certain things that you can't do because it was in that community. It's just not deemed to be cool. At least it wasn't, okay? And time travel is one of those things. It's like, you know, as soon as you start talking about, oh, I'm thinking about doing something about time travel, all your peers are like, oh, uh, you know, you feeling okay? Uh, yeah, they you back know, out of the room slowly. Yeah, I know that feeling. <laughs> right, exactly. That's, and that's the way they, they would treat them. Okay, now, and, and to me, because I'm an engineer, I'm not, I don't call myself a scientist. I'm a research and development engineer, by the way, not design development. And that's, that's important because the development part of it means you take what you're researching and you figure out a way to make money with it, Okay. So I'm not bound by the same uh, confines as physicists who work at a university and have to worry about, like, you know, getting tenure or something like that or satisfying the administration above them and trying to get grants and all that kind of stuff. But basically, Kip Thorne back in 1988 said that even though a lot of physicists like science fiction subjects, they are afraid to, or at least they were at that time, to veer too close to the area of science fiction because then the peer pressure starts. And the peer pressure in the science community makes the kind of stuff that, you know, these jaded high school cheerleaders do to each other look like, you know, a happy birthday party. So the bottom line is that, uh, and then that has changed, though, over the years. It's gotten better. But uh, for a while, it was really, really bad. And so 
what that basically meant is that the same impetus to look for really cool, cutting-edge kind of things uh, in the scientific community uh, didn't exist the way it did back at the beginning of the 20th century. All right? Right. So, I mean, how smart is that? <laughs> I mean, it's like, like I said, these physicists like Ed Farhi, they're like talking about general relativity. I mean, general relativity came out in 1915. Right, It's right. almost 100 years old. Exactly. It's like, you know, what, hasn't anybody been looking at anything else? Apparently not. No. So, but back exactly. to the... Exactly. They haven't. But that's the actually true. Okay. That, excuse me, there's something they don't know. So they don't know whether it's, it's possible. They just haven't looked. And so, to me, it's kind of like, you know, what's that about? So... Basically, I was looking, in fact, a lot of my research goes back to what people are looking at in the early 20th century. After all, that's where Einstein's unfinished unified field theory is derived from. It was like he was working on it in the early 20s, uh, initially, and uh, he was trying to unify electromagnetism and gravity. And a lot of people in the scientific community have completely forgotten about that. Well, that's what a lot of Tesla's work was based on, right? Was Einstein's unfinished... No, 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 no we, we can't get that mixed up. Tesla okay. stuff... In fact, Tesla thought Einstein was wrong about a lot of things. I'm not saying Einstein was wrong. I'm just saying Tesla disagreed with him. Okay. But Tesla was really big into electricity. Okay? Right. And um, I'm not sure. I mean, you'll hear all kinds of, you know, fantastic things about Tesla. Uh, like, you know, he had an anti-gravity machine and all, all kinds of unfounded stuff. But the, uh, the thing about it was he was really big in electricity. He wanted to do, like, free energy. He wanted to transmit electricity through the air and, and all right, those kind of right. deals. And unfortunately... He wasn't pragmatic enough to uh, tell J.P. Morgan, okay, we'll do this, and you can put a meter on it, but just because it's, so, it's going to be free to you, just don't make it very expensive. Because that would have that really helped us out a lot. But he was too much of an idealist, and so, you know, you, you know the rest of the story. Right. Okay, I don't want to, yeah, I, right, I, sorry, exactly. I, I, so, I got you di- to digress here. But let's, right. back to my question as to whether it's possible. I'll say, if you turn on the time machine today, mm-hmm. could you travel back further in time than October the 14th, 2012? Could you travel back to 1581? Okay, great. That's a good point. Um, no, if we just did follow the, the, the path that we're working on right now, okay? We wouldn't, it would not happen that way. All right. However, there is a separate stage that could be applied that is, at this point, strictly theoretical, but there's a basis for it that could possibly allow us to do that. Because, see, while I was talking about the closed sunlight curve things like code for time machine, closed sunlight curves are something that do appear in general relativity. And, so, and what they do is they take you back to a particular point in the past where that curve began in the first place. All right? Right. And there's actually even problems with the descriptions of these closed time curves, because some descriptions say that when you go into one, you come right back around and repeat the same thing over and over and over again. But if that happens, then really, like Stephen Hawking's idea of chronology protection conjecture comes into play. Okay, you, you're going to lose the room with that. All right, sorry. <laughs> let me, let me, that's all right. Let me take a time out. We'll come back and we'll, we'll continue to drill down on this topic of traveling back further in time. Uh, then when you turn the time machine on. Marshall Barnes is in a race to build a time machine. And we'll find out more when we come back. Don't you dare go away. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Peering into the shadows where the truth often hides... You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serry from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. 
Uh, what I'm about to say won't make much sense to my uh, affiliates uh, uh, listening down the line, but uh, for those listening in the greater Toronto area uh, and anywhere that uh, this blowtorch station AM740 reaches, you just heard an ad from our dear friends at Conspiracy Culture, and they're presenting uh, a lecture, Q&A, book signing, a meet-and-greet with um, a legendary uh, researcher, G. Edward Griffin. You probably uh, are familiar with the creature from Jekyll Island and World Without Cancer. Uh, and he is coming to Toronto Friday, November the 16th, presented by Conspiracy Culture. I will be hosting the event, introducing uh, uh, G. Edward. However, the topic has somewhat changed. He, he's not going to be talking about the Federal Reserve. It's, he's now going to be talking about the New World Order, a second look at the United Nations. All right, that lecture has changed it's going to be amazing, but it's not about the Federal Reserve, and, the, and which was the basis for his book, The Creature from Jekyll Island. It's going to be about the New World Order, a second look at the United Nations. Again, it's going to be an amazing lecture, and uh, he, he'll be speaking on uh, Friday, November 16th at St. Paul's, uh, Trinity St. Paul's United Church, 427 Bloor Street. It's about a five-minute walk from the Spadina subway, and if you want tickets, the best thing to do is just to call 416 916 1696, conspiracy is the other way uh, to find them. All right, back to uh, Marshall Barnes building a time machine. Okay, so what um, there's a, a caller that's on the line that, that wants to talk to you as well from uh, Jeff from Moncton. Okay, uh, but I, I, I want to just uh, make sure we, we um, you know, finish yeah, off this last can point. You go back before the time yeah. machine is created. And well, you're saying that there is a possibility. Yeah, there, there's a possibility. It's just not based on what most physicists are talking about when they talk about time machines. They're usually talking about closed time-like curves. And in that case, uh, no, you couldn't. So, you know, we're talking about a different thing altogether. But in your, but in your world, in your vision, it, there is a, there's an, there's a, the possibility. There is, a, there, there is a path to go down to test whether or not it might be possible. Okay. So that's, yeah. Now, if you're, if you're sent to the past, can you get back? I mean, how, I mean, how sure. are you able to... I'll, I'll answer the question. Yeah. yeah. You, if, if, for example, if you, let's say you open up some kind of a wormhole to the past, okay? As long as the wormhole stays open, yeah, you can get back. Now, let's say the wormhole collapses, but because of the technology we're using, and you're not, didn't, you weren't silly enough to go back to some point in the past where, you know, you didn't have, you know, comparable technology... All right, then, you know, if that happened, then you could build a machine again and come back if you knew how to do it, okay? For example, if I, if I went back and then something happened and the machine uh, got destroyed on this end, and I was, as long as I was, like, you know, in the, the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, I could build it again and come back. So, you know, that, in that case, it would work. If you have a vehicle and, uh, and, and you somehow are able to go back, to, and back in time, yeah, you can get back because you have the vehicle. The only problem with, with, with uh, coming back is whether or not you have the means to do so, build another machine where you are in order to do so. People wanting to go back to ancient Egypt and ancient Rome and all this other kind of silliness, I mean, that would be very difficult. Plus the fact no one spoke English back then, so I don't know why people want to do that kind of stuff. You know, I'd rather go back to like some other part in the you know in the latter part of the 20th century, where I know everything that's going to happen, and I know where to find the best restaurants and all that kind of stuff, and have a lot of fun. <laughs> I like you know, this is uh, this is refreshing actually to hear uh, someone speak about you know time travel in these terms. Uh, yeah, let's go back to when you know uh, when a Big Mac was 50 cents for crying yeah. out loud. Never mind, you know, trying to, you know to see the Gettysburg Address or anything. <laughs> no, let's go to Woodstock. Let's go to you know right on. Yes, cool stuff. You uh, know? But Marshall, let me ask you very quickly, and then I'll get to Jeff, who's yeah. been very patient on the line here. Um, first of all, 
what, what are the obstacles for you to complete this? Is it funding? Is it what, what's 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 the main obstacle you're well, facing? We have right now? again, like I said, I am a research and development engineer, so this means I have a, a business uh, side to all this. So uh, we have a business plan. We're in the process of working it. And so funding's not the same problem as it was as it is with Dr. Mallet, uh, who needs like three hundred thousand dollars. Last time I talked with him, in order to even get to the first stage, so he can try to see if his idea even works. I mean, with three, I I couldn't spend three hundred thousand dollars on this project, at least to get to the point where I can say, hey, this thing works. All right. You don't need that kind of money. Uh, one of the reasons why is because we already have the STTS technology, which enables us to start to do interesting things to begin with. So now it's just a matter of scaling the thing up. I mean, the amplifier that I referenced was 14,000 watts. That's like a $6,000 amplifier, okay? So that's kind of expensive. But, I mean, I don't need anywhere near the money that Mallet needs. I what mean, do you need, close. Marshall? What do you need? What do you Basically, need? all we need is time to, to, to conduct the research and, and, and start you know, scaling things up. Right. So, in other words, I think we're going to have a conclusion, whether it's possible or not. We're going to know in less than 30 months. You in know? Less Probably than 30 a lot, lot, lot less than 30 months. And, how, and, and assuming that goes well... How soon uh, before um, you could send someone backwards in time? Well, okay, let's say that everything goes as we think it should go. Realistically, next year, we should know whether or not we can, you know, it will really work. And then, then that, that's just in terms of getting close to that curves going and maybe even opening up some kind of a hole in space and time. Then comes, like, all the other interim stages you have to go through to figure out, okay, what are you going to do now? What, what are the limitations? It, there's a lot of research that goes into that. So, I, you know, it would be like maybe another year or two, something like that, because we don't know. We're dealing with un, a lot of unknown things here. I don't know. For example, radiation problems. We already know that this, the fan the way it is right now is creating ozone, but there's no high voltage involved. So we think there might be some kind of Z-manzing effect that this warping space, the thing that's, that's being generated, is creating. So we have, to, we have to have all kinds of issues we have to deal with along the way. It's not like it's a matter of like, oh, let's get that amplifier and hook it up and crank it up all the way to 11, you know. <laughs> this is, you know, after all, you know, very, uh, um, you know, it's a scientific process. And we have to be careful because there are certain risks. Right. You know, you don't want to ramp it up to 11, as you said. Yeah. Uh, yes. Let's send Christopher Guest back in time. Let's, <laughs> all right. For those fans of uh, <laughs> Spinal Tap. Uh, right. Jeff has been very patient on the line from Moncton, New Brunswick. Jeff, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Thank you, Richard. Hi. Marshall, I got a question for you. Sure. Um, I don't really understand the, uh, uh, your, your machine. Uh, do each one of your blades then have a, a magnetic field? Okay, the entire apparatus in terms of the, the axle and the blades are enveloped in one single electromagnetic field. Okay, and that's, so it's emanating off of, off of all of that? Exactly. As a matter of okay, fact, then it, did you not consider that the EMF influence on the electric uh, fan motor itself would... Yeah, I did, and here's the answer. It's not connected to the motor. In fact, I demonstrate it's not connected to the motor because I'll turn the thing on, I touched a wire, which there's an exposed wire that's copper, that's attached to the thing, and it doesn't, it's not attached to the motor. If it's attached to the motor, which, of course, has electricity going to it to make it move, I get shocked, and I don't get shocked. No, no, so you're, missing my, you're missing my point. Go ahead. The, the uh, magnetic field that, that you're basically, you're rotating a magnetic field, are you not? No, I'm not. I, I keep saying it's an electromagnetic field, which is yeah. not the same as a magnetic field. But so it, we're not, it, I'm not dealing with, like, you know... And, um, what's the word? This escaped me. The, um, uh, 
I can't remember. It has to do with the motor and the copper, you know, the stuff inside the motor and all that. It has nothing to do with that. And this is, this is completely exterior. This is on the outside. It's not right. magnetic. It's electromagnetic. But it's and we'll also, and by the way, we've done, we've done control tests where we'll play like the radio through it with the fan turned on, and it doesn't do any of this kind of stuff, which means it's not just because it's inside an electromagnetic field. It's inside the STDTS electromagnetic field, which has special gravitic properties, which is why it does what it does. So how do you, um, uh, how do you separate your uh, power sources for your uh, uh, light and your uh, uh, fan motor? Okay, how do I separate the power sources for the light and the fan motor? Yeah. Are well, they I mean, on the same not, panel? For one thing, they're not part of the same apparatus. Two, they're on opposite sides of the room. A light but, source, but you're running them off the same panel, though, right? No. So you have different different electrical panels for each one of those units. Well, you, you're talking about uh, what the, the same circuit in the in the building or something? Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I, I don't know. Probably probably are in the same circuit. They may not be. I don't know. We didn't check that. That's but something you might want to look at. And did did you the, measure uh, the light? You said that the light decreased. Did you actually uh, measure it? No. It, what we did was we videotaped it. and We were analyzing the footage, and you can it's measurable. You can actually see the light moving across the blade. It's just somebody slicing pieces of it away. And so it's not a matter of, like, you know, the light is dimming or something because the light's not dimming at all. It's like all of a sudden parts of it are missing. Jeff, you're obviously you're going somewhere with this. What do you think is happening? Well, uh, what I think is happening is that I think that the um, magnetic field, called an electromagnetic field or not, it's a magnetic field that's being generated. And that uh, magnetic field... Uh, I believe is affecting the uh, fan motor, and I, so I think that that's what's putting the, uh, uh, the, the the different speed on the fan motor itself, and that's why it's getting out of sync with the uh, light, uh, with the strobe light. Um, but I I also uh, I question the uh, the whole relevance of of uh, uh, being able to travel uh, through time simply because of the uh, you know the the experiments that they used were primarily taking uh, the uh, d- decay of uh, a muon at uh, 2.2 microseconds uh, at sea level and saying that, well, it's 2.2 at sea level, but at uh, 1.5 kilometers up, it's uh, 6.4 microseconds. Um, and they're saying that that's the uh, effect of uh, warp of space. Um, I don't think it is. I think it's well, if I can interject here real quickly, you're, yeah. you're taking a lot of things and you're mixing them up. Number one, I don't have anything to do with the muon experiment. Number two, the muon experiment had nothing to do with the warp of space. The muon experiment, if you're, return, if you're referring to the ones testing the uh, special theory of relativity, had to do with time dilation, which had to do with velocity, not the warping of space. Uh, in reference to my experiment, basically what happened is, again, it's not a magnetic field. It's an electromagnetic field, and the key thing is that we did a control test. In other words, we sent an electromagnetic field from the same amplifier to the fan and to see what would happen. Nothing happened. It was just like we weren't sending a signal to it at all. It wasn't unless we sent the special STDTS signal to it that we got in these results, and which makes sense because we've done velocity tests with the STDTS signal, on other things that were moving in a straight line. Okay, I want to interject here because I don't want to get too bogged down. Uh, Jeff and Moncton, I I appreciate the call, and I hope we'll talk to you again. Uh, Now, listen, uh, uh, where can people 
uh, find out more about what you're doing? Can they see YouTube video? Can they see where can they well, learn they more about what you're doing? The best thing to do is to go to this website that's been created. It's called the Great Time Machine Race. Weebly. That's W E E B L Y. dot com. The Great Time Machine Race. Weebly. dot com. All the information about what's starting to happen is going to be on there, both for Mallet as well as myself and my project, which, which is called the, the Fair Drahunk Fan. Now, so, I'm guessing this is a... There. You'll see pictures. We're going to eventually start putting video on there. There's, there's all kinds of stuff that's going to be there. And again, you're saying that it's, it's, it's possible that if everything goes right over the next 30 months, you could start sending people back in time. Within... I, I caution with the people thing only because there's certain things we don't know about. But we could certainly... I mean, we're going to be sending, like, you know, photons and things like that back. And I, I thoroughly expect that information, maybe even small animals, I don't know. But I'm just saying that that is not in the realm of impossibility. Here's a, uh, Okay, here's yeah. my parting question. Sure. And if, if I mean, it, uh, no offense, but it seems like if, if you were able to, f- to discover this, someone else must have at some point, and if time travel is possible, why aren't we seeing, why aren't there time travelers amongst us? All right, great. First of all, I, I love that, because that's that Stephen Hawking thing, and I'm always uh, a foil with Stephen Hawking. Um, basically what happens is this. Number one... Uh, if time travel exists, and in fact, the original thing was time travel tourists. Where are all the time travel tourists? Anyone smart enough to do time travel and then tour, and turn it into a, a touring business, you know, is smart enough to know if you go back in the past, you don't want people to know you're from the future because it's going to cause all kinds of problems. The other thing about it is this, and this comes down to physics, because of parallel universes, there's a near infinite number of paths out there. So the probability that someone from the future is going to come to our particular past is rather nil, particularly if they're running a time travel business. All right, okay. that's, we got to leave it at that point. Okay. I, I think that's a great answer. And Marshall, what a pleasure meeting you. Thank you. Uh, you've left us all gobsmacked, as they say, across the pond in the U.K. I hope you'll come back on and talk more. Not a problem. Marshall Barnes. All right. And uh, you can keep tabs on this program, whether you're a time travel tourist or not, at www.richardserrett.com. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio. AM 740. Hey, friends, welcome to the program. Uh, very quickly, I, yeah, this happened uh, the other day. I pulled out a, you know, the, the, uh, the fall weather has descended upon us, so you go into the sweater drawer, right? It's time to pull on the sweaters. And I pulled a sweater out, and uh, it had uh, little holes around the, the sleeves and the collar. And I thought, geez, that's a, fair, a, new, a new sweater. I didn't think I had worn that out, hadn't been, you know, put through the laundry that often. And, uh, uh, the mighty Aphrodite looked at that, and she said, "Well, no, that's you, you, we've got moths. Uh, the moths have been eating that, and um, I'd never actually seen that before. I, I mean, I always heard about that. You know, remember mothballs? You'd go over to your grandmother's house, and the smell of mothballs, right? Uh, but uh, it reminded me of that old Woody Allen joke. Uh, you know, a, a, a moth eats an entire argyle suit." And he's just like rolling on the floor. He's just, oh, he's in such pain. So he goes to the doctor and he says, doctor, I just ate an entire Argyle suit and my stomach is, you know, in incredible pain. And the doctor says, uh, eat one plain sock, eat one plain brown sock and call me in the morning. Uh, anyway, uh, the Mothman, uh, that's a long way to go for this connection. But uh, uh, I remi- I'm reminded of that because um, the Mothman Festival, if you're, if you're familiar with this Mothman uh, legend, the legendary creature, it was seen in the Point Pleasant area of West Virginia uh, back in the, the, the mid to late 60s. And, uh, uh, you know, this, uh, people reported seeing this flying creature with 10-foot wings and uh, it was chasing their cars. And anyway, it was seen by multiple people, multiple credible eyewitnesses. And now in Point Pleasant, 
in West Virginia, uh, every year they have uh, an annual Mothman Festival. And uh, there's a great big 12-foot metallic statue down there. And uh, anyway, a dear friend of this program was down at the Mothman Festival. And some strange things happened to her down there. And she's here to tell us all. It's been a while since she's been on the program. She's one of our, our regular contributors, one of the leading experts in the world on the paranormal, with more than 50 books published by major houses on a wide range of paranormal, spiritual, and mystical topics, including nine single-volume encyclopedias, her work is translated into 15 languages. She's worked full-time in the paranormal since 1983, researching, investigating, writing, presenting, and teaching. And her present work focuses on interdimensional entities uh, of all kinds, technological and mediumistic spirit communications, spiritual growth and development, problem hauntings, and portals. A great pleasure to have Rosemary Ellen Guiley back in the program. Hello, Rosemary. Hi there, Richard. It's great to be back. It is great to be back. Listen, I, I was uh, earlier, I was talking to somebody about time travel, and now I wish I could go back in time and just, like, uh, forget about that whole uh, story about the moths. <laughs> I thought it was cute. <laughs> anyway, the Mothman Festival. Uh, you were there recently, and you were telling me that some, some very strange things were happening to you while you were there taping a TV segment. Well, they have to do with spirit, dramatic spirit manifestations and also a concept known as a port. The mysterious disappearance and reappearance of physical objects. And the spirits are often connected with this activity. Um, now, Point Pleasant, where the Mothman wave was um, centered back in the 1960s, is in a portal area. It's intensely haunted all of the time. People have ghost activity in their homes. They see mysterious creatures in the ro roads. There's a lot of UFO activity. And uh, it just seems to be one of these places on the planet where there are thin boundaries between dimensions. So I go every year to do research there. I speak at the Mothman Festival. I've had some strange experiences, but really topped out this on this last one. I was doing some filming for a new television series called American Monsters and Mysteries that's going to be airing on Discovery. And uh, we... We're talking about a lot of mysterious creatures, including Mothman, of course, and the jinn. Now, I feel that the jinn are behind a lot of our mysterious creature manifestations and that they also have a presence on the landscape. They're occupants of the earth like we are, only we don't see them most of the time. And uh, while we were filming, this was all caught on camera, and I hope some of it makes it onto the show, uh, I was making very emphatic points about the interdimensional landscape, that there are these beings, a lot of beings, who live on the earth along with us, and other cultures throughout history have known this and have had respect for places in the landscape that belong more to them than to us, whereas we in the West really aren't aware of that, and even if we are, we think we can just bulldoze in and put up whatever we want and tear up the landscape and frack for the gas and develop and put roads. And if there are paranormal phenomena that uh, happen uh, as a result of that, we think we can eradicate that too. In other words, we think we can do what we please. So I was in the midst of making these points when one of the Fresnel lights um, in the back of the room where we were filming, in a haunted hotel, no less, blew up. It just exploded. 
Hmm. I've never seen that happen, uh, by the way. I mean, you you know, occasionally they'll they'll go out, but I've never seen one right. explode. And I've spent a little bit of time and explode. Uh, and all this was caught on camera, and it was like a punctuation. It was like a spirit. Um, some would call it a spirit agreement or a spirit comment adding emphasis to what I was saying. And uh, I looked at the camera and I said, that was a gin manifestation, because I was talking specifically about the gin then. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is joining us, uh, leading expert on the paranormal. We should point out, uh, uh, Rosemary, uh, you you just recently wrote a book uh, called The Vengeful Gin, all about this interdimensional entity. And we should explain a little bit, again, those who haven't heard you you talk about them earlier, uh, what, what you mean by the gin. They are a supernatural race of beings who have a long history on this planet and uh, are believed by many to have preceded human beings on this planet, and yet they lost out to us uh, and got pushed into what we would now call a parallel dimension. The same story is told about fairies, and I think there's a very strong relationship between gin and fairies. And there's also a relationship to... shapeshifters. Okay, shapeshifters. But they're also known in the Middle Eastern culture as genies, correct? That's right. Well, actually they're known as jinn. When uh, the French translated uh, Arabian folktales into uh, French, and then those were translated into English, the term jinn got warped into genie. And so we've known them as the genie in the bottle, uh, and, and that's about all we know about them. But actually they're quite formidable en- entities. They can act like demons, ghosts and poltergeists, fairies. I believe they're involved in the E.T. abduction scenario. Uh, and many of them don't feel very kindly toward us because they, uh, they say they've been displaced by us, just as the fairies communicated to our Celtic ancestors the same thing. So you're down at the mm-hmm. Mothman Festival, and you're, you're uh, uh, doing a, a segment, a TV segment for a new show on Discovery, and all of a sudden, as you're talking about you know, this interdimensional uh, landscape and these entities that occupy these different dimensions, one of the uh, the TV lights goes kablooey. And then w- what else happened that convinced you that you were dealing with uh, a gin? While we were waiting for the light to cool down so the technicians could change it and we could resume filming, the crew went out of the room and uh, my fiancé and I went back to inspect the light. And we found at the light, at the base of the light, a gin calling card. Now, this is very unique to me in some of my cases. It's something they leave whenever they want to let me know they've been around. It's a coin. Uh, For several years now, they have left me pennies, nickels, and dimes. Uh, And it's not just odd change that you find on the street or, or things like that. These are very specific to time frame. They're between the 1950s and the 1970s. And they usually look like they've been uh, horribly sanded with something rough. Uh, and there at the base of the lamp was a 1970 abraded dime. Hmm. Uh, so another piece of evidence of, yes, you know, this was not an accidental blow-up of a light. This was a deliberate spirit act um, commenting on the nature of the conversation. And I was making a case for us needing to be more respectful of the other entities who share the landscape with us, that we need to reorient ourselves 
you know, in the East they have uh, the uh, the system of feng shui, to, that nothing is built or occupied without taking into account the energies of the landscape and the spirit presences who occupy the landscape. Right, and, right. Uh, that's something that never really took hold in our culture. Uh, back to that coin, you call it the calling card. Now, I've often heard uh, over the years when people are relating, uh, well, what they would call uh, a ghost story, um, that uh, there would be, um, you know, a coin dropping, seemingly dropping out of midair, like a penny or something, and this to them was a sign from beyond. So how do you distinguish between, um, I guess, a gin and a garden variety, uh, I can't believe I'm using that term, a garden variety haunting, an actual, you know, disembodied spirit? Uh, well, in fact, coin ports, and they're called a port. Uh, they do uh, show up in a lot of spirit cases, and uh, they've manifested at seances and things like that. For me, and as uh, as I mentioned, this is unique to me, that when I am involved in investigations where uh, the jinn are present, I get these coin reports. I don't get them when I go to what I would call an ordinary ghost haunting, an investigation where most of the presences are residual energies or some other type of, uh, of entity present. It just seems to be in the gin case. It all started with uh, a gin case that I began tracking about three years ago where the, the woman who was the principal experiencer uh, had these coin reports too. And uh, two nights before I was to meet her in person for an interview, I had a 1957 penny manifest mysteriously on uh, the floor of, of the hotel room that I was in, mm. and I discovered when I met her that she had also had a 1957 penny uh, show up in her house, too. You've got quite... Had quite a collection of these coins, and they've been happening to me ever since. Do you have the collection? Do you still keep those coins? I do. I, I actually can, I, I call it, uh, for lack of a better term, cursed money. Cursed money. And um, I keep it as um, paranormal uh, oddities, um, I have quite a collection now of pennies, nickels, and dimes. I'll Occasionally bet. they throw in a quarter. I don't know <laughs> why they don't give me anything large. But, uh, <laughs> it's like you're busking. I've also had them manifest out of thin air. Oh, my. Listen. Uh, I had uh, one case where I was going through clothing in my closet, and uh, I do not keep change in my pockets. Uh, I don't wear, uh, you know, shirts with pockets that I would put change in. And while I was leafing through things in the closet, just pushing the hangers, a coin fell out. There it was. Listen, Rosemary, I gotta, I gotta run. But um, this is a coin collection. I gotta see sometime. I think, uh, Rosemary, thank, for, thank you for this. We'll, we'll talk. Uh, actually, I'll see you down in New York in a few days. Uh, and then, be wonderful, Richard. I'll bring forward. some of these coins. Thank you, Rosemary Ellen Guiley. The website visionaryliving.com. Who is John of God? We'll find out on the other side. Stay with us on the Conspiracy Show. Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations. What goes up must come down. And it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Welcome back, friends. Uh, there is, um, down in uh, uh, Brazil, in an um, area southwest of Brasilia, a man who is described as a simple farmer, he has very little education, uh, yet he is drawing uh, millions of visitors 
uh, certainly uh, thousands of visitors every year, but uh, probably has reached out to, to millions by now, who are hoping that they will receive a miracle from this man. He is performing something uh, that has become known has become known as psychic surgery, and this individual is now known as John of God. Quite a remarkable story. He certainly has uh, his detractors, those, those people who who believe he is perpetrating a hoax. Uh, but then you have the anecdotal evidence from people who have traveled at great expense. Uh, and, and long distances uh, to see this man and have come away claiming that they have been healed. And he uses some rather unorthodox methods. Uh, there is a component of psychic surgery, as I say. We're going to find out all about this. But before I welcome our next guest, I also want to let you know that this individual, John of God, as he is known, is actually, this is a very rare opportunity. He's coming to Toronto. He is coming to Toronto on... Uh, Friday, March the 15th, for a three-day event, March 15th, Saturday the 16th, Sunday the 17th, and he will be appearing at the Metro Toronto Convention Center, and if you go to my website, richardserrett.com, and and, uh, on the homepage, just scroll down, you'll see tonight's show, and underneath John of God, there at 1220 a.m., You'll see, learn about John of God's upcoming event in Toronto. And if you click on that, that'll link through to the actual event. And there you can find information about getting tickets, information about the program, what's going to happen, accommodations and everything. Uh, But right now, let's find out who is this John of God. And to help us is someone who has met this individual uh, I believe on a number of occasions she's she's in uh, she's been um, uh, very privileged one of the, the few people that have actually interviewed him. Gail Thackeray is the is a uh, um, um, a spiritual uh, healer, a spiritual educator. She is uh, the medium and host of Gail Thackeray's spiritual journeys. She shares her experiences in Brazil with the healer John of God and the spirits she is blessed to work with, and um, she also is coming to Toronto. Uh, she'll tell us a little bit about that. Uh, Gail Thackeray, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Thank you, Richard, so much for having me on. And uh, thank you for coming on. How did you first meet John of God? Well, you know, um, I had been told several times about him, and I think this is kind of how spirit works. Um, you know, we tend to see him on TV, or we hear a little bit about it, and somehow we get drawn to go there. And I had been a medium, and I was working as a Reiki master and a healer, and I'd heard about this guy, and I thought, well, that sounds really interesting, but it's not like I have some kind of a serious disease or anything, so I don't really have a a reason to go, and I don't want a reason to go, thank goodness, Um, but it would be interesting, and I just kind of left it at that, and then uh, one night, I have a healing center in Los Angeles, and I have different speakers that come. And so this one particular night, I had a lady who was an astrologist, and she came, and she talked about how where you are on your birthday sets up your astrology for the year and how you can change that if you want to go to a different city for your birthday. And I said, oh, interesting. So should I stay in Los Angeles for my birthday? And she looked at my chart, and she went, oh, no, that would be really bad. So I said, okay, where should I go? And so she said, okay, well, I have to do some charts and think about it, and I'll call you next week. And she calls me back, and she said, um, you want to know where you're going? She 
could pick anywhere in the world. So I'm thinking, I'm hoping it's not like Greenland or somewhere. Right. And she said, or New Jersey. Sorry. Just kidding. Sorry? <laughs> or New Jersey. But oh, just, New Jersey, just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> just kidding. It's a wonderful place. And so she said, uh, Brazil. So I'm thinking, like, Rio or something. And she said, no, no, you've got to go, like, more uh, north central, like Brasilia. And I said, wait a minute. That guy, John of God, is from close to Brasilia. And I thought, you yeah, sneaky spirits trying to get me down there. So yeah, I'm being a little superstitious, better girl. And I just decide to book myself a flight and go down there all on my own um, to visit this guy, John of God. And it was so amazing. It was so life-changing. I could tell you so many stories about things that happened to me and people I met and things that happened to them that I actually ended up writing a book about him. So... Um, what, 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 tell me about this village where he's from. What, I mean, he's, this, is he, he's not living like in the lap of luxury. I understand all the proceeds go to the village council. Is that right? It's a small town called Abijanya. It's really the middle of nowhere. He was advised by Spirit many years ago. I mean, he's been doing this now 50 years. Um, he was advised maybe 30 years ago to go to this town, Abijanya, and build his healing center. Well, this is really the middle of nowhere. He had no idea why, but he trusted it, and he went and he built his center there. And it turns out that it is actually built on top of a mountain, and there are lots of crystals in the mountain. So he actually mines some of the crystals that you can buy at the crystal shop at the Casa. And that's a lot of the way that they raise money, because it's free. It's free to go in front of John of God and ask you questions and receive a healing. And so they... they take money from donations and they make money from crystals but it is it is free for anybody to go see that's the interesting thing for those people that believe that John of God is perpetrating some sort of a hoax that it's you know this psychic surgery is some sort of sleight of hand well then the question is then what's the angle because he's not profiting from it uh, as you've indicated uh, and when he goes I understand when he goes on on uh, speaking events a lot of the proceeds go to the to the village uh, the council to help uh, the, the the locals. So well, really, everything everything he makes goes to the casa, and not only the casa, but he helps so many people. I mean, what people really don't know about him is he really he helps families. He helps put children through college. He helps poor families that can't afford it. He came from a very very poor background, so he really feels for these people. He actually has a soup kitchen that's set up in the town, as well as feeding soup to everybody at the cars every day. He feeds like something like 1,500 soup bowls um, a day to the poor people. I mean, he really does a lot of charity work right, above right. and beyond. Gail Thackeray is here, a medium, spiritual educator, host of Gail Thackeray's Spiritual Journeys. Uh, she, she's coming to Toronto as well. We'll tell you about that in, in a few moments. But right now we're talking about this uh, individual who hails from... Uh, sort of uh, northwestern Brazil, near Brasilia, a remote village where he is, by all accounts, performing what some are claim, claiming to be miracle healings. What sort of things... I've heard some strange stories, Gail, that he'll do things like take a knife and scrape someone's eyeball. Tell me about what, he, what you've seen him do. Seen and experienced firsthand, to be honest. Um, you know... Everybody focuses on these uh, physical surgeries because that's the most crazy, outlandish things that go on. Most of the time, people receive a healing that's invisible. People go in front of him, and he will say, yes, 
um, I heal you, I give you a healing, perhaps he'll give you an invisible spiritual surgery, which is kind of like a meditation. That's how most of the healing is done. And people go in front of him that can't walk, that have cancer, that have some major disease. And not everybody, many, many of these people get healed just by walking in front of him, just by an invisible surgery and kind of a, a blessing. They are completely cured. But what he does is he just also bring people out on stage that have volunteered for a physical surgery. And he does this as kind of a show of faith to let people see that there is something supernatural going on. And people that say that he, this is fake, they obviously have never been to the cars and seen him because anybody can walk right up next to him. You can be standing right there and he takes these people and he will actually cut them open on stage. So he might, you know, take out a, a tumor from somebody's, uh, you know, cancerous breast tumor or something. He actually will cut the skin in front of everybody on stage. And you see that these people are not even flinching. And there's no way that anybody could be cut open and stitched up and literally have open surgery and not even flinch. And you can talk to them afterwards and they'll say... I was completely aware, completely awake, but I had absolutely no pain. You saw this up close? Oh, he does this every day. Usually, he'll bring a couple of people out in the morning or a couple of people out in the afternoon, and he'll do this as kind of a demonstration. How does he make the incision? He takes a knife, which um, I suppose a knife is sterilized, but this is, he has no sterilization on his hands. There's no... Um, <laughs> There's nothing that you would normally see in an operating room. I mean, basically just takes a knife and cuts them right open right there and then and stitches them up with no anesthetic and no um, any kind of procedure, not even, you know, gloves or anything, and nobody ever gets infections. And often the scar is gone within a couple of days. My word. Sometimes he takes them and he scrapes their eyeball. Yes. Scrapes it with a knife. You've had this done. I had this done. Tell us about it. <laughs> well, I was down there filming, and I had interviewed a lot of people. This was, um, I think, my second or third time. And I had um, experienced invisible surgeries, which were very powerful. And I talked to many, many people. And it was about the last day of filming, and I, I woke up in the morning and I said to myself, you know, kind of experienced everything else. I've talked to everything, everybody about everything, but what I haven't experienced is I haven't volunteered for a surgery myself. Well, you, can't, you have to be assigned a surgery first, and then you have to volunteer for it. And I said, I wonder what it feels like. I could do the ice scraping. I think that being cut up on stage, I don't know if I could do that. Or another thing that he does where he takes this instrument and he puts this instrument up your nose, and I'm thinking, I don't know if I could do the thing up the nose. But maybe the ice scraping, that doesn't look too bad. I wonder what that feels like. Maybe the ice scraping, that doesn't look too bad? I mean, I, couldn't, I could not imagine uh, anything, you know, someone even just, like, gestures towards my eyes and I'm, like, on the floor. Uh, I can't imagine actually taking a knife and scraping your eyeball. Well, I think I thought, okay, maybe it's sleight of hand. Maybe this one, he just kind of passes it over your eyeball. And if you're, if you're in a meditative state, you could maybe stand that. So I'm thinking that looks about the easiest. I want to see what that feels like. 
So I went in front of him and I said, um, you know, I have to use reading glasses when I get on my computer. Can you fix that? And he smiles at me, a big grin, and says, okay, surgery this afternoon. So now I have a choice of spiritual surgery or physical surgery. So this is a point now I can offer to volunteer. So I offer to volunteer and say, I'd like to go on stage and I'd like to have a physical surgery in front of the cameras. And so he takes me on stage and he puts you under kind of a, I feel kind of subdued. I mean, I feel like half in a trance, but not, not really trance-like state, just kind of a little relaxed. And he takes me up on stage and I can see all the cameras and everybody around me. I mean, there's usually about 500 people there. So everybody's gathered around and people taking pictures and everything. And I'm quite aware of them, but I feel nice and relaxed. And he, he takes me up and he puts my head back and he takes a kitchen knife. And I see it actually coming at my eye. And I think, Gail, okay, just be calm and relaxed. I've talked to lots of people. They've had this done. They said it looks really freaky weird because you actually see the knife. You see it being done, but you don't feel any pain. Okay, so I see the knife, and I see it go in my eye, and it starts to scrape my eye. Oh, Lord. At first, I feel no pain. I can just see it, and it's a little strange. Then he comes back to scrape it again, and the second time he comes back, it hurt like heck. I could not believe it. It really, really hurt. And it scraped my eye, and I went, oh, this is real. I mean, this is not sleight of hand. This is real, and I really feel everything, and this is crazy. What am I doing here? And I'm saying in my mind to the spirits, um, I'm supposed to get anesthetic here. What's going on? Right, right. (laughs) And he comes back, and he goes to scrape it again, and it hurts like heck. And then finally, I hear the spirits in my mind say, okay, can I have your anesthetic? And it was like they shot me with something. And I actually felt my whole body just go limp. And the knife was still scraping my eye, but now I couldn't feel anything. Listen, hold on there, Gail. We'll take a time out. We'll let those people that are recoiling in horror (laughs) compose themselves. They're going to run to the uh, the washroom and splash some cold water on their face. (laughs) And they'll come back and we'll continue our discussion with Gail Thackeray, author of Visiting John of God, 30 Days to Prosperity, a workbook to manifest abundance in a number of books on, uh, on Reiki. And we'll continue to discuss this miracle worker, some say, John of God, here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Keeping an eye on the New World Order, this is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak with Richard, call 416 360 0740 or toll free 1 866 740 4740. What's this magic lamp doing in my car? 
I'm your genie. Call me Gene. What do you wish for? I'd love to earn SO Extra rewards faster. Your wish is my command. And two times SO Extra points on all eligible purchases at SO stations. Wow. Oh, but that's not all. Earn four times points on extra grade gas and six times points on supreme grade gas. Wow. Could you make me taller? Visit your nearest SO station before November 18th. Also, download the free SO Extra app. Details at SOExtra.com. This is what winning sounds like. The AM740 Jet. You and a guest could be flying high with the new AM740 and Sunwing Vacations to St. Martin. Staying at the four-star beachfront Sinesta Maho Beach Resort and Casino. Listen to the Happy Gang weekday mornings between 6 and 10 and the Afternoon Express between 2 and 6. When you hear the jet, call in and qualify for an unforgettable vacation for two from Sunwing Vacations, Sinesta Hotels and Resorts, and the new AM740. <coughs> it's cold and flu season again. Tell me something I don't know. Heard of Akinaforce? Developed by A. Vogel, Akinaforce is clinically proven to help relieve the symptoms of colds and flu. Could I avoid catching colds? Taken as prevention, Akinaforce builds a strong immune system. Akinaforce is available at health food stores, pharmacies, and wherever natural health products are sold. Visit avogel.ca for a chance to win a trip for two to Switzerland. Conspiracy Culture presents your chance to hear and meet author G. Edward Griffin. When some of the banks get into trouble, the purpose of the Federal Reserve System comes to the fore, which is to pass on the losses of the banks to the taxpayers. Isn't it time you understand what's really going on in the world? From the lips of G. Edward Griffin. Friday, November 16th at Toronto's Trinity St. Paul's United Church. Tickets on sale now at Conspiracy Culture, Queen Street West, east of Roncesvalles. the truth you can handle the truth the conspiracy show with richard serrett from zoomer radio am 740 welcome back you've heard of john of god you've maybe seen some of these incredible uh, youtube videos where he appears to be performing uh, a surgery uh, on, on people without anesthetic uh, removing uh, tumors uh, on stage performing uh, some call it psychic surgery uh, people come away claiming that they have been healed. He uses some very unorthodox uh, methods. Uh, Gail Thackeray is with us, a spiritual educator, medium, author, uh, 30 Days to Prosperity, a number of uh, Reiki manuals, a medium's path to the psychic world, and her book, uh, Spiritual Journeys, uh, documents her visiting, her journey to the spiritual healing center of John of God in Brazil. And John of God is coming to Toronto March 15th, 16th, and 17th. I've, uh, I've linked up to the, uh, the website on my homepage at richardserrett.com. Uh, Gail Thackeray is also coming to Toronto for the, uh, the Whole Life Expo on November 9th to the 11th. And Gail, we'll talk about that in a few moments. But back to your eye scraping. So, crazy as it seems, I asked to feel it. 
So I got what I asked for. And I think they were trying to show me that, you know, there really is something spiritual going on. They showed me before that this is real, this is not sleight of hand, and they showed me the anesthetic. But Richard, you know, amazing healings go on without the physical surgery. That's just kind of a very small part of what goes on. Most people get their healing through these invisible surgeries. But after your eye scraping, what happened to you? Well, um, I think my left eye that got scraped is much better, but I don't want to go back and have my right one done. <laughs> no, I guess not. But, but, so, so your left one, is, is you had like astigmatism and, it, and it, it, uh, it's, it's corrected? or? You know, I really did it for the, to be on film and for the movie and for the experience and to see what it was like. So, and I think part of me questioned, is this really true? Is this really, could you really stand it? Is this sleight of hand? And they let me know, no, this is real. Mm. And so, I think that was the point of it. But, you know, sometimes it's just the little moments. Like, one of my, my, I think my very first visit, I went in front of John of God, and I asked a business question. Because you can ask, not just about healings and things that you have. You can ask, hey, I want help with my finances or my relationship. And I went in front and I asked a question about a business. And I, I guess I'm thinking, oh, he's going to say, yes, you should do this or that. And he really doesn't say much, just a, yes, okay, we work with you. And after you go in front of John of God, and by the way, John of God is really incorporated with spirits. When he's working, he's not really the person anymore. He's a full trance medium. It's really a spirit that you're talking to. So after I've gone in front of this spirit, I then go into this little room where they do a little closing meditation. And I'm sitting in this room, and I'm completely not in the right frame of mind. I'm thinking about my business, and hey, I didn't really get an answer, did I? You know, And I'm sitting there completely thinking about this, and all of a sudden... It's like this bright white light came down from the ceiling and just covered me. And it was this most amazing, loving feeling, so intense. It was like being in love for the first time, but a hundred times greater. And I just actually burst into tears of happiness. It was so overwhelming, Hmm. this loving feeling. And this voice came. Now, I'm a medium, so I hear voices, but not like that. This was like a man standing there, and this voice said, but what is your higher purpose? Meaning, why do you care about all this stuff? This is where it's at. This is what this feeling is. And I felt like just this place, being in this place, this, this home of John of God, there are, that God spoke to me at his place. And I've heard other people have similar experiences. And I said, hey, I want to share this with people. So when I got back home and I go, I have this little center and we do different talks on a Monday night. And I said, this particular Monday night, I'm going to share some pictures from my trip from John of God. Come on over. Usually I have 20, 30 people show up. Well, this particular night, I wrote my email, nothing special. And I get a call from somebody who says, I just opened an email. I don't know what happened. This white light came out, this feeling, this amazing feeling came over me. And my hand I've had problems with all my life, it's working, it's completely fine, it's completely normal. And then I got email after email saying, I don't know what happened, but I opened your email and my my hip's working, or my leg's working, or this is working. And so many people showed up that night all saying the same thing. Like somehow they had been touched by spirit from Brazil Hmm. through me, through an email. Who is this guy? <laughs> he is, uh, he is, I've seen a lot of healers. I'm doing this show about traveling and meeting healers. And for me, he's the most spectacular one alive on this planet. There's, no, there's nobody like him. How did you get the name of John of God? 
Well, he is just John or Joao when he's Joao the medium, when he's the person. But when he becomes John of God, it's when actually he incorporates spirits inside of him. So he does this before he goes on stage, and he does the same thing when he travels. So when he comes to Toronto, he will do the same thing. It's all set up like the cars are in Brazil. And he says a little prayer, and spirits actually come inside him and work through him. So as you come up and you walk up to him, you're actually coming up to a spirit. And there are different spirits that come through him. They're very powerful ones. Dominacio is the name of the casa, and that's because the spirit Dominacio comes through. Another one, Dr. Augusto, who was a, a, a doctor hundreds of years ago, comes through him. And these different spirits work with you. So as you come up in front of them, they read your karma, they read what's going on with you, and you ask them, you know, what you'd like healed, and they work on you. All right, Gail, stay put. We'll come back, talk more about John of God and get a real sense of who this individual is. You've met him, you've talked to him, you've interviewed him. Let's find out who is this man when we come back on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Gail Thackeray is with us, spiritual educator, psychic medium... Uh, she has been to Brazil. She has met John of God. She has seen some, well, miraculous things, some say. Uh, still, of course, there are the skeptics and the detractors. Uh, Gail, it sounds like you went there as a bit of a skeptic and came away uh, with, and with subsequent uh, experiences, like the one that you just re- recounted, you came away as a believer. Absolutely. For me, it was, it, it was life-changing. And I do take groups down there, and I do take people's pictures down there. And a lot of people get healed, not everybody. Um, it's kind of an odd thing, but there are, you know, there are many, many people that go down with these terrible diseases that get completely healed. And then there are other people that maybe don't, or they have to go back a few times. And it's not really about whether you believe, because it's not always whether you believe. I think if you believe and you're more open to it, maybe works a little better. But there are people that get cured that don't even believe in it. So it's not really working. It's not really whether it's not a kind of a, a power of the mind, you know. So some people think, oh, well, maybe it's just because you believe it so strongly. I've seen uh, a lot of indication that it's not that. Um, I mean, I, I've heard... Uh I've heard it told that John of God, uh, aside from these miraculous abilities, other than that, is not not the, the person you would expect to be doing these sorts of things. I've heard that, correct me if I'm wrong, he's a bit of a womanizer, uh, that he likes to get into the cups on occasion, shall I say. Uh, what can you tell me about him as a person? You know, he's a regular guy. He grew up as a very poor farmer. He's, uh, he's now a, a businessman. And he does a lot of charity work. He's a very sweet, kind soul. But, you know, he's also got a family and he's got a life. When he is John, he's John the person. He has, you know, issues like everybody else. When he's doing his work, it's not him. He actually goes to sleep. He says he can't remember anything. And it's kind of funny because you'll see him working on somebody. Spirits are talking, making a big deal. I've had this with my clients, you know. And he brought one of my girls up on stage and talked about her and her career and how, you know, he's going to work on her. And then he came outside. Now he's John the person. He looked at her and completely didn't recognize her because he's actually asleep. We, we got to interview him, which was a, such a blessing. It was very rare to actually get him to do an interview. 
Um, but we did a documentary. It's called John of God, Just a Man. And we got a long interview where he talks about his personal life a little bit and, you know, what it's like and what it's like to be incorporated and, and to have this kind of work going through him. And I'm going to be showing some clips from that. I'm going to be in New York this weekend at the New Life Expo. Um, and I'm going to be in Toronto at the Whole Life Expo, which is uh, November 10th weekend. And I'm actually going to show a little bit of that interview and a little bit of clips so they can see a little bit more. And then, of course, like you said, we're actually bringing him live next March. So if you want to find out a little bit more about him and see some of the interview, I'm also going to be bringing some crystals to give to everybody. How rare is it to get him to actually leave Brazil, get on a plane, come to a place like Toronto, and, and, and do this three-day event? Well, it's very rare. Um, he's, he's done it a few times in Europe. These events always sell out months before. We have 12,000 tickets in Toronto, and we expect that uh, before the end of the year they will be all sold out. He's only doing this a few times a year. It takes a lot of energy to travel and... Um, how old a man is he? A lot he? of trust, and you know we're bringing even bringing John of God, and the spirits come with him. So um, it's all set up like the casa, and we try to uh, get it all exactly the same as it is Brazil. He comes in the day before, and he sets the energy, and he makes sure that everything is right for the spirits, and the spirits actually come through at these events. How old a man is he? He just turned seventy. He just had his seventieth birthday. And 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 physically, is he? I mean, what does he look like? looks like kind of an average guy um yeah he's not what you'd expect you know he doesn't look like some great flamboyant healer um he looks like quite a nice quiet unassuming guy does he travel <laughs> does he have an entourage does he have security well he just he brings people with him he speaks portuguese so he brings translators and he brings people around him he brings um anchor mediums with him who are his most important mediums, the ones that help to, to hold the space while he does this important work. He creates massive amounts of energy when he brings these spirits through. Um, can I tell you a little story about Switzerland recently? Please do. I don't know if I, don't know if I should, but um, he came to Switzerland. My partner, Joseph Schoffman, brought him to Switzerland a few months ago. And before John of God goes into entity, he does this kind of a prayer. And you actually, sometimes he'll do this on stage and you see him and he just kind of goes, <gasps> and as he goes into entity, he changes his demeanor. His eye color actually changes from brown to blue and he becomes an actual spirit. You've seen his eye color change. It, he does this every day in front of people on stage. My word. You can see he looks like a completely different person. And as different spirits come in, you, you can kind of recognize them because his, his hair sticks up one way if it's St. Francis Xavier, or his hair is very kind of neat and a little bit darker if it's Dr. Augusto. His, his appearance actually physically changes. So in Switzerland, they're in the room, and he just uh, starts going to incorporation, but it's taking a long time, and it looks, <gasps> and everybody's going, oh, wow, I think he's, uh, you know, is a problem? What's going on here? This incorporation. And just Joseph and Martin were there, and they said, well, we wonder if we need to call the doctor, because it looks pretty scary. Finally, he comes into incorporation, and this very powerful spirit comes out, and he says, give me a glass of water. So they give him a glass of water. And he throws the water over his face, and then he eats the glass. Oh, my word. And hands back a little bit. And he said, okay, why did you do that? And he said, because there's not enough faith, and I want to show people that there is something supernatural. And this was King Solomon that came through, which my is very, word. very rare. And as people were coming up, 
there were hundreds of people in wheelchairs and on crutches and he was literally taking the crutches away and one guy comes up and he goes to take the crutches and the, and the guy's not quite sure you know he's not quite sure he can walk and he's saying no no give me your crutches and the guy's like no 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 I'm not sure I want to give them over and he says I have done the work and he takes the crutches and he throws them down and makes the guy walk but hundreds of people got up out of wheelchairs and walked for the, for the first time in years and so that was a very very strong powerful event and that that's not a spirit that would normally come through. That was a very rare event. Now, you've taken uh, clients of yours down uh, to Brazil. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things the skeptics are always asking, you know, where is the documented proof? Where is the evidence? Have there been follow-up studies? Let's say someone has, I don't know, multiple sclerosis, and they go down there, and they have uh, some sort of a spontaneous or miraculous healing. Is there, you know, has, has the paperwork been done to to prove that these individuals went down there with MS and when they came back, it was gone? Anything like that? I don't think anybody's actually done a study of, hey, these people are going to John of God and then they came back. But there have been people that have come back from John of God. They've had some kind of invisible spiritual healing and they've gone to their heart doctor and the heart doctor said, uh, what's going on here? You've got, um, you know, stitches that you've had, internal stitches that we can see on the x-rays and they've shown them the x-rays. Hmm. <laughs> they've had tumors that he's brought out you know, it's cut out of people that they've got in jars and the, you can see the tumors right there. I had a lady that she couldn't come down, but she gave me her picture. She came to see me and she said, I've got fourth stage liver cancer. They've only given me a few weeks to live. And I said, give me a photograph. I'm not going for a couple of months, but give me a photograph. I'm going to put it in my triangle that I have at home and I'll just tell the spirits you're coming. A week later, she went to her doctor for a usual checkup. And he comes out and he's giddy and he says, this is unbelievable. Your, your cancer was completely spread and we couldn't operate it. But now it's encapsulated into three separate tumors. We can take him out. And they took him out that day and she's completely cancer free. So the doctor says, well, you know, the body can do strange things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's always the case, right? You don't know. But I did have a guy came to me, last time I was in New York, I had a guy came, and we did a meditation about John of God, and we asked the, the spirits, the cars were with us, and we thought about John of God, and I asked them to come up and touch the triangle. And I had a guy that got up, and I said, do you have a blood disease? And he said, actually, I have Lyme disease. Hmm. And I said, okay, now it's gone. And he looks at me like I'm completely crazy. A week later, he calls me, and he said, this is unbelievable. I went to the doctors, I, had, I went to the doctors twice, I had all the tests, I had Lyme disease, I was going in for my treatment, and before I had my treatment, they gave me another blood scan, and it came back as negative, not only negative that I don't have Lyme disease, but if I had it, I would have the antibodies, and it shows I've never had Lyme disease. I have two tests that show I had Lyme disease, and I've got a test afterwards that says I've never had Lyme disease. When you met John and you talked to John of God, did you ask him, why you? Why, why do you have this ability? What happened to him? When did this happen to him? This happened when he was a young boy. He started having premonitions, and then um, he, he, he saw a vision of an angel who told him he should go to the spiritualist center. He goes to the spiritualist center, and they said, oh, hey, John, come in. We've been waiting for you. And he looks at them like, what do you mean you've been waiting for me? Um, how do you know my name? And they said, no, come in, come in. And he thought he, fa- he, thought he passed out. He thought he fainted because he was so hungry. And when he came round, they said, no, you didn't faint. 
you actually incorporated, this is the first time he incorporated, and King Solomon came in, and apparently all the villagers came around and he healed everybody. And he didn't remember a thing. He just thought he'd passed out, and he came around, and all these people were standing in front of him. And then that started happening to him when he was a young man. And he was traveling around trying to get jobs. Um, he worked as a tailor in the army. And uh, he was traveling around getting different jobs, and he, this kept happening to him. He kept having these spontaneous healings. But it was not an easy life for him because he had a lot of people chasing him that thought he was practicing medicine without license. And, um, yeah, he went through a lot to be where he is. It's, it's not, and he didn't have an easy life, and I, I don't know if it's really a blessed life. Um, it's a dedication. I mean, he dedicates his life to be incorporated with spirits and heal people. And it must be difficult to have a normal life and to enjoy your things and enjoy your family when you're constantly, your body is being used like that. But when you ask him, he says, I'm blessed to be in this position and I work for God. He's very Catholic. And uh, he says, God heals and God heals through me and I'm blessed that I can help people. What does the, uh, Brazil obviously is a very Catholic country, what does the, I don't know, the archdiocese in, in Brasilia or wherever the local clergy make of what John of God is doing? Did, I mean, do they, do they endorse what he's doing? Do they think that uh, this is the work of the devil? Or what, are their, what is their perception? Well, like I said, growing up, he had a lot, he had a lot of uh, problems with um, some of the religious sects and some of the political sects that did not want him doing this kind of work. But there's been times where he's ended up then healing some of these people, and they've come back and they've needed healing. And so um, I think definitely it's more open now. I mean, he's, uh, he's healed um, political figures that are very important. So I think at this point he's probably the most renowned healer in Brazil and, and uh, much more accepted than he ever was because he's, he's proven himself and he's, he's done it for people of power. Uh, so, Gail, he's coming to Toronto on March 15th, 16th, and 17th, the Metro Toronto Convention Centre. Again, I've linked up to the uh, the website on my homepage. People can click there, get all the information about the venue, the program, the accommodations, tickets, and so forth. You're coming to Toronto, uh, is it November 9th, 10th, and 11th? Yes, November 9th, 10th, and 11th. I'm going to be there. I'm going to show a little bit of the footage, and I'm going to live a talk about John of God. Um, and I'm also going to be in New York this weekend at the New Life Expo, the New Yorker Hotel in Manhattan. Um, so if you want a little taste, I can give you a little bit more information. You can come meet me. I can tell you my stories. You can see a little bit of film. But the real deal, this is an amazing opportunity to come next March. And I don't know how many more trips you'll be able to do. And um, if you have the opportunity to come, I think you really just have to come. Gail, great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. All right, and I'll uh, probably see you in New York. Okay, thank uh, you. Bye-bye. Bye. Gail Thackeray. Uh, back next week with a brand-new program, President Clinton, former President Clinton, apparently has confirmed that he investigated whether alien artifacts were being housed at Area 51. More on that on this program next week. Hope you'll be along for that. My thanks to Tim Spreen for his capable audio production. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in the dark, what I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. Good night.
This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.